author Tom Zellner still remembers his first real road trip. So did you end up in St. Louis on purpose, or did this that just kind of come about? A total accident. Uh, it happened, it was the night of July 3rd, and uh, fireworks were in the air over the arch, and uh, it might have been this station, actually, um, those many years ago, that was playing the 1812 Overture, <laughs> which was the, absolutely the perfect soundtrack to, uh, to drive into St. Louis. So that's a powerful first impression of St. Louis. <laughs> uh, did the city hold up to that first glimpse of exploding yeah. fireworks over the arch? You know, actually, it did. Um, I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. The author recounts that trip in his essay, Drive, which is part of his insightful new book of essays. It's called The National Road, Dispatches from a Changing America. And joining us today to tell us about it is Tom Zellner. Tom, welcome. Good to be with you, Sarah. So you write that you took your first major extended trip your first year of college. You were then at the University of Kansas. What led you to go east? So many people go west. Right. Uh, I'm from Arizona, and um, the the cities of the east just seemed magical to me. You know, these are uh, places that, you know, have names that seemed out of Lord of the Rings, you know, Vandalia, Chicago, St. Louis, uh, places I had read about but never actually seen. Hmm. So did you end up in St. Louis on purpose, or did this that just kind of come about? A total accident. Uh, it happened, it was the night of July 3rd, and uh, fireworks were in the air over the arch, and uh, it might have been this station, actually, um, those many years ago, that was playing the 1812 Overture, <laughs> which was the, absolutely the perfect soundtrack to uh, to drive into St. Louis. So that's a powerful first impression of St. Louis. <laughs> uh, did the city hold up to that first glimpse of exploding yeah. fireworks over the arch? You know, actually, it did. Um, I think we all tend to um, look askance at the landscapes where we grew up. You know, when I go back to Tucson, Arizona, you know, part of me is like, oh, my gosh, look at this, you know, mundane landscape. But something about, you know, this this wonderful uh, American continent um, always benefits when you can see it from fresh eyes. And, you know, whenever I come into St. Louis again, it's it's always something kind of you know, wonderful and, and dark and strange and, and, and mysterious. And uh, it still has that aspect uh, to go over to Cahokia or to go over to the um, industrial cities of Illinois or even just drive through uh, downtown at night. There's 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 a mystique about it. Yeah, wonderful, dark, strange, and mysterious. I think these are all <laughs> adjectives. They're better than what we sometimes get. We will own that. Uh, I'm curious for your perspective on this. It's been said that St. Louis is maybe the last eastern city, and Kansas City is the first western city. As somebody who has spent so much time driving this country, do you buy that? That's a common saying. Um, all Missourians will, will, will know that one. Um, I'm, uh, I think it's more complicated than that. Um, hmm. uh, there's a local historian, Harper Barnes. Uh, everyone should read his book, by the way, about uh, the East St. Louis yeah. uh, massacre in 1917. Um, he told me, and I quoted him in, in, in this essay, that uh, St. Louis actually has more of the South than uh, any other part of the country, and uh, that too must be acknowledged. 
Mm -hmm. I I think you're right about that. As a former northerner who's now living here, I see that southern aspect in a way that I feel like a lot of native St. Louisans are in denial about. Um, And you came back to St. Louis um, for a more serious reporting trip recently. And some of the things you covered in that trip, I feel like kind of tie into some of the southern nature of this town. This is a chapter that, unlike your chapter about road tripping, it doesn't always show St. Louis in the best light. This is called Welcome to Dirty Town. So are we Dirty Town? (laughs) There are many dirty towns across the United States, and um, this is not uh, a unique story to St. Louisians, so um, this is going to be redundant, but it wasn't redundant to me, and I don't think this is fully appreciated um, by folks uh, throughout the country about the 93, count them, municipalities in St. Louis County, uh, distinguished from the city, of course, uh, most of which formed for reasons of segregation after World War II. And um, what Welcome to Dirty Town attempts to do is um, sort of trace the, the histories of some of these venomous places, not just in St. Louis County, which, of course, have you know, nickeled and dimed particularly Afri- African-American residents throughout the years, but also look at the origin stories of uh, towns across the U.S. with a history of municipal corruption. And what you find, if you look deep enough into those nativity stories of how these towns got started, is that there was some sort of dirty deal at the origin. So, for example, there's 159 counties in Georgia. The reason for that is to break up black voting power. Hmm. Um, there's, there's no other way around it. It was, it was a kind of a gerrymander to chop up these little towns and create these uh, little courthouse rings of power that, um, as can be predicted, um, treated their own residents terribly. Um, and a- anyone um, who you know, has had the experience of driving 10 miles in St. Louis County and going through eight or nine you know, little, little bergs uh, on the way and wonders, you know, why, why this is happening. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of that has to do with the uh, the, the post-war segregation of, uh, of eastern Missouri. It's interesting. You you say that this will be a familiar story for St. Louisans, and, and certainly the reporting that you did, it's something that St. Louis has grappled with in the years following the death of, of Michael Brown. That part is not new to us. But what I really liked about this essay is that the context that you put it in was new to me. And that wasn't just the context of, of places like, uh, you know, as you're talking about these small towns in Georgia and, and the way other people have have drawn their boundaries like this. But you talk about it in the context of town. Um, You write, quote, Americans are bred to understand the town or city as perhaps the most benign form of government, the supplier of tangible goods like parks, libraries, recreational leagues, sidewalks, and the like. It's far more likely for a common resident to be personally acquainted with the mayor compared with a member of Congress or the governor and to have a tiny bit of clout. And it's far easier to actually get something done. I mean, the way you describe that, that is what we think of when we think of town. And that all seems like such a good thing. And yet you, you expose this flip side. It, it's, it's the flip side of, of absolutely the same coin. Can you have the one sure. without the other? Sure. Um, you know, we have sort of a Thornton Wilder vision of uh, a romanticized vision of town. And, you know, Thornton Wilder, by the way, uh, painted a darker vision of town than um, is, is commonly comprehended. And, you know, the, the, the same is true for uh, towns that do have uh, an, an origin story that's less than noble and um, whose government might be staffed with um, folks who do not have the best interests of all their citizens in mind. And 
it can quickly turn um, ugly fast. So you do get into, in this chapter, you get into some of the reforms that have happened in the St. Louis area. And we do want to mention one of the reforms to get you up to speed on our very latest. We no longer have 93 municipalities. There have been some consolidations. We now have 88. Had to do some little fact-checking there from the local perspective. But yes, it, for a long time, it was 93. But some of these changes, including electing you know, reformist prosecutors, things like this, do you think these towns can be salvaged? Or when people are in such small groups, are they always going to try to use the structure of government against each other? Right. Well, as uh, uh, an attorney for Arch City Defenders put it to me, you know, these towns should not exist. They really have um, no reason for being. And, you know, the, 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 the really terrible purpose for which many of them were formed, which was simply to um, harass uh, black residents away from them, you know, that should that should not be on the table any longer. And so um, the consolidation that you mentioned, I applaud it. You know, I think these municipal structures do need to be um, broken down. You know, the argument's been made by uh, the defenders of them that these communities do have a certain um, distinctive flavor to them. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, may be true from, you know, uh, the perspective of a longtime resident on the ground level. Um, but for, for those who have been victimized by these towns, you know, I think it's time to say, uh, let's fight City Hall and win. Hmm. So you'd like to see us maybe get over romanticizing um, this idea of town? In that context, yes. Um, you know, there's there's lots to love about towns. There's lots to love about municipal governments. And, you know, I'd like to say that I love them so much that, you know, the bad ones uh, should be hated all the more just for the damage that they do for what should be a, a, a wonderful, you know, building block. Hmm. So talking about things you love, it's very clear in this book. You spend so much time in it visiting these sort of far-flung places that aren't the kind of places that most of us spend our vacation. You visit a lot of small towns. Um, And just your love for the American landscape really comes across in this, even when you're talking about some really depressing things. I get the sense that um, your love of the road trip keeps you sort of in a positive place. I mean, do you see things about rural America right now where you still feel hopeful? It, it seems like so many of us are looking at it in a different way right now. We're, we're genuinely worried about it. Sure. I mean, our, our red-blue division, you know, can be expressed as an urban uh, rural division. And that's true, that where you live more than ever uh, in, in our country really, you know, soaks through in terms of, you know, ideology, uh, personal tastes, um, etc. Um, I, I should say that the original title for this book was Your Land, you know, hmm. per Woody, Woody Guthrie, this idea of uh, a kind of a left-wing patriotism. You know, I, I think The National Road is probably the right title for the book. But, you know, this is something that, you know, those of us who, um, you know, do approach uh, America from what's called a liberal perspective, you know, we made a huge mistake by surrendering the the symbolism of patriotism. You know, those of us who uh, don't just love the American land uh, and, and all that it symbolizes, you know, all up and down the spectrum, um, and, and love the idea of America, the, the, the really wonderful, although certainly imperfectly executed founding idea of this country, you know, we, we, we ought to embrace that sense of uh, Americanness. 
We're talking today to author Tom Zellner. His new book is The National Road, Dispatches from a Changing America. Um, We asked our listeners in advance of this segment if they had been on road trips that changed their life or what they thought about America after getting off sort of the beaten track and, and checking it out for themselves. We got a great email from Rick. He writes, when I retired five years ago, I took off on what may be an extended road trip. I bought a large motorhome, hitched up my car, rented out my house, and took off to live full time for three years on the road. Taking off from St. Louis, I swung southwest, stopping first in Texas and Oklahoma, and then on to New Mexico and Colorado. I stopped at a variety of places, but my favorite was boondocking, which is just pulling over on some unclaimed spot of land and being alone and isolated and surrounded by this country. After that, I moved on to several national parks. I was so awed by glacier, white sands, and of course, Yosemite. My third major leg was the Northwest, where I spent almost two years of my trip loving the land and the culture and most of all the amazing San Juan Islands. I waited till I was 65 to do the most amazing thing in my life. Everyone should put this in their back pocket and try it. Tom, would you endorse that idea? A hundred percent, and particularly uh, Rick's idea of boondocking, which is to say uh, flopping out where uh, few have flopped before. I'm a, I'm a great fan of uh, stealth camping. Stealth camping, that's one good way to put it. Better than illegal camping. The town wants its taxes. Um, on the subject of, of this boondocking and, and some of your travels around the country, I love the chapter you had where you talk about this attempt you're, you're still in the middle of, or at least were when the book went to print, and that is you are attempting to climb the tallest mountain in all 50 states. What would ever possess a man to spend his time doing something like that? I have no idea. And in fact, the essay is is an attempt to answer that question. What is it about, you know, that, that tiny little spot of land um, surrounded by the geographic, you know, entirely abstract entity of a state that holds uh, such a fascination? You know, it turns out that there's a whole group out there uh, dedicated to this purpose, the High Pointers Club. Uh, the president of it happens to live in Kirkwood, Alan Ritter. Hello, Alan. And, you know, these spots that uh, are, are in every state, every state's got a high point, even Florida, by the way, with a high point of uh, th- 315 glorious feet you know, <laughs> in a, in a road, roadside park, ranging from that, of course, to up to Denali, you know, um, all of them have their characteristics and all of them are sort of metomines, you know, of the state itself. I, I regret to say that uh, Missouri's is just not that exciting. I, I, I was going to ask you. Yeah, you say in this chapter that you've done 44. I, I didn't see you sort of single out Missouri as being the greatest among them. Um, this is in the Tom Sock National or State Park. Um, you were just kind of underwhelmed by this one. Yeah, and in some ways, that's you know you can blame um, uh, God in heaven for not topographically blessing. Uh, Missouri with a more dramatic high point. Yeah, I, I we, sort we of frequently also, shake our fist at that. You know, God yeah, could have blessed yeah. this state with a lot more mountains, but what yeah, can you, you do? You got the Ozarks, for gosh sakes. But this one, you know, it's what we call a drive up or very much, you know, nearby a drive up where, you know, there's a parking lot nearby and you just sort of take this little amble and, you know, it's it's very undramatic. And here there's this sort of sort of little hump and, okay, now we're on the top of Missouri. Woohoo. You know, for for a state that has so much more to offer, it's it's so ironic. I will um, uh, give a, a special note of dishonor to the state of Kentucky, a state uh, blessed with, uh, you know, wonderful mountains. Um, and its high point happens to overlook a mountaintop removal operation. Oh, so, no. Yeah, no oh. kidding. I, I know. It, 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 it kills you. And then, um, you know, there was this effort in the 1930s uh led in part by the ccc this is one of the not so great things they did they felt like they wanted to have roads to drive to the 
so folks could drive to the top of these, you know, vistas, and they wound up ruining a number of really good mountains. Mount Greylock in Massachusetts is forever disgraced. Um, Mount uh, Chiha, I think I'm saying that right, in Alabama. Uh, Clingman's Dome in Tennessee, an otherwise dramatic mountain, completely ruined by a road. So, um, yeah, I have strong opinions on this. Yeah. Is there one that you would recommend as one that maybe we don't think of as a mountain? I'm sure the highest mountain in Colorado has to be amazing. But here's sort of an underrated mountain that's worth a journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. And believe it or not, I'm going to recommend Kansas. Um, It's called Mount Sunflower. It's uh, high on a prairie swale, uh, really close to the Colorado border. You know, Mount is a bit of a a joke. Um, But I went to it at night, um, 2 a.m., and something about being there at night and watching the transcontinental jetliners from New York to LA go, go overhead, hmm. um, it was such a mystical experience. It was almost, dare I say it, like driving into St. Louis for the first time. Wow. I mean, that's high praise right there for Kansas. So <laughs> the fact that it can even come close to that experience, I feel like it, it makes me think Kansas might be worth a visit after all. Uh, do it at night. Do it at night. There you go. That's some advice. Now, you also traveled to Iowa, and this was one of my favorite chapters in this book, and there are so many good chapters in this book. But you went to Spillville. Um, and I, I, I loved the history of this. This is where Dvorak uh, finished his string quartet in F major, which is known as the American. So what brought Dvorak there and what brought you there? It was a, a town of Czech immigrants. This is in the 1890s. And, you know, he was uh, recognized as a maestro. Um, and his personal secretary says, why don't you go out to the American frontier and spend some time with my cousins out in Spillville. <laughs> and, and yeah, he took him up on it and had a <laughs> wonderful summer. Um, you know, he, he compared Iowa to the Sahara. It was, you know, then not as populated as it is now. Um, but, you know, it was a town um, that was defined by its ethnicity. And so I went out there uh, 125 years later after the Dvorak summer um, to ask about immigration which, uh, of course, had been roiling the country um, as uh, this furious national argument. There's a packing house there where ICE did a massive raid and uh, broke up uh, all kinds of families. This was a multi-ethnic uh, packing plant, uh, Latino, um, Somalian. Um, you know, it was just uh, something that, that had ripped the, the community apart. And, you know, you'd think uh, in the middle of you know, Red Iowa, that you would have, you know, found a lot of cheering for this, but it was actually the opposite. And there was a, a sense that, you know, immigration is deeply woven into our country. It um, provides us, you know, a huge part of our economic health. And we're actually not down with the Trump administration on this. And so mm-hmm. uh, they, they, they elected someone with a more, for Congress um, in that district, with a more reasonable position. And so you know, talking with the folks of Spillville, it's it's not quite the single story that you think it's going to be. So that's one of the loveliest things about this book, and it's such a great read. I really hope our listeners will get this. It's, again, called The National Road. Um, it's, it's not necessarily the story you think it's going to be because you are not just spending time going from fancy airport to fancy airport. You're talking to a lot of Americans and, and getting a more nuanced look from the ground. What's your sense as we head into this really pivotal election? Do you think the polls are right this time and, and uh, that this is going to be the end of Trump's America. I hope so. There's been no no more one divisive force, certainly in my lifetime. And, 
You know, it's caused me to to, to rethink some aspects of this country. Um, I'd like to point out that the name of uh, our incumbent president appears only once in this entire book. Um, this is not a book about Trump. That is totally fair it's to say. It's not a, not a book about Trump, and it's only about politics in only the most abstract way. You know, this is about who we are uh, as Americans and our need to constantly rediscover this. And you come away thinking who we are as Americans is still something to be proud of. Uh, a qualified yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I remain um, absolutely enchanted with uh, with the American land. I feel uh, so fortunate to be born here, if only because of just the uh, the, the beauty of this continent. Um, and it is geography is in many ways determinative of who we are. Um, this gets into deep waters. This gets into the argued about frontier thesis of Frederick Jackson Turner, where he said that you know uh, our uh, movement westward and our subjugation of these lands. He didn't really talk about the genocide of the natives, but, you know, that's <laughs> that's a complicated part of it. You know, does landscape uh, make us who we are? And, uh, I, you know, while Turner has his problems, I'm going to kind of agree with him. Hmm. And to read more about Tom's thoughts on this, you're going to have to get the National Road. So, Tom Zellner, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Sarah. Thank you. And we want to go out of today's show by playing a bit of the string quartet. This is what Dvorak composed in Spillville, Iowa, The American. Is listening to an episode of St. Louis on the Air part of your daily routine? If so, suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help new people discover our show. Thank you. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.